Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm Brady Huggett. Our guest today is Leroy Hood, the man behind Applied Biosystems and now the Institute for Systems Biology. Our conversation touched on Montana, where he grew up, and um, playing football at the high school and college level, something Lee did at Caltech, and also the current plans at ISB, including their 100K project, which is now ongoing. We recorded this podcast in Seattle at ISB, so let's pick the conversation up here, where Lee and I are discussing Terry Avenue, which is where ISB is located, and how Amazon has grown up around it over the years. So that's it. Listen up. Here's your First Rounders podcast with Lee Hood. Amazon is, has really taken over a lot of lot of the space as it grows. Yeah, yeah. so it's, you're yeah. in a very tech-focused center here, then. We are. Yeah. We are. The whole quarter Everything is innovation. Everything pointed, pointed toward innovation. Exactly. Right. Uh, I know that you grew up in Missoula, Montana. And well, I was born in Missoula. I, I went uh, through to um, first grade, and then we started moving around the state. Um, <clears throat> I actually, my first grade was spent in a small one-room schoolhouse in Ramsey, Montana, which was terrific. Uh You could learn everything for all eight grades. Went back to Missoula, and then I moved to a small town called Shelby uh, uh, a year prior to high school and spent my last five years there. Uh, Let's talk about the sporting aspect. Uh, I know you played football in high school and then even in college, too. I did. We we uh, we actually were undefeated my last three and a half years in high school. So we won all the uh, Class B state championships uh-huh. those years. And then when I went to Caltech, which is not exactly a powerhouse in football, I did play football there for the uh, four years I was there. And then high school. <laughs> and I actually uh, played sixteen games in the Rose Bowl since the Rose Bowl was Caltech's. Uh, <laughs> home stadium. All right. So I can make a claim that few professional football players could match. Yeah. But you were you were a, uh, a quarterback in high school? I was a quarterback in high school, and then I played halfback at Caltech. Oh, that makes sense. I was faster than most of the other people on the team at Caltech. Our high school team could have beaten our Caltech team. Oh, really? It was very much better, yeah. A little bit more about your family. Your father, it sounded like he had some scientific aptitude as well. He was an engineer. Well, he was an electrical engineer, and he uh, he played a really important role in my life because when I... 
got into high school, he was teaching courses in electrical engineering and systems design and things like that for uh, employees at the Mountain State uh, Telephone Company in Colorado. And he'd have me go down and take those courses with his men. So uh, I didn't like it because I thought he was uh, trying to show off how good a student I was. Uh But in retrospect, it really changed a lot about how I thought about biology. And then um, I know that you had a, a younger brother who had was born with Down syndrome. That's correct. And did that start you thinking about medicine at an early age? It did, and it, it got me curious as to what Down syndrome was all about. We didn't know about chromosomes yeah. at that time. So it, it kind of activated an interest in, in biology and medicine, yes. So with your background, from the beginning, did you feel like you were always going to go and do you know, health or life sciences, or for a while did you think about something else? Well, uh, my grandfather ran a summer camp for uh, geologists from Princeton, Yale, Columbia, and Harvard. So faculty came out there, taught courses, PhD theses were done there. I worked there three summers and learned a lot about geology and did. uh, I actually did a project there that uh, made me one of the Westinghouse science talent winners Mm. of the 40s. So I was just the second one from Montana ever to win that. And that made me consider seriously uh, uh, geology for a time. But what uh, really converted me is my senior year, my chemistry teacher came and said, look, uh, you know a lot of biology. Why don't you help me teach sophomore uh, biology? So I said, I'd do it if I could teach out of Scientific American. And so I did that. And one of the... Uh, one of the uh, articles that I taught from was, this was 1956, an article on uh, the three-dimensional structure of DNA. Mm -hmm. And it was just an incredibly impactful thing. And I realized, my goodness, biology has this fundamental hardcore chemistry at its core. And here was this beautiful molecule, and I suspect I understood about uh, 0.1% of what it was all about. But it was was a fascinating... um, a fascinating uh, incident that really convinced me biology was going to be an exciting place to go. So when I went to Caltech as an undergraduate, I uh, I went into biology and did a lot of chemistry. So as let well. me. I just want to make sure I'm getting this straight. Why did he ask? Was there a teacher shortage, or he just he needed the help with? Uh, <clears throat> with teaching? He wanted. He he knew I knew a lot of biology, and he just wanted help. And he felt he was he didn't know that much biology. Ah. So he asked me to. So we agreed that I would teach these specialty areas where I could do lots of reading and be a, 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 a world's expert in Shelby, Montana, on <laughs> the structure of DNA or whatever else it was. So I taught a whole series of courses. And do you, from, think, do you think that also um, sort of uh, awakened a, an interest in teaching for you as well? Um, I, I think it did, although... You know, I'd, I'd spent four years doing debate and, you know, learning how to do public speaking, and that that really awakened an interest. I had a terrific debate teacher, and he said the really key things in debate are, one, you never take notes. You always look at your audience because engagement is really critical in getting people excited about things. And he said, what that means is if you're dealing with complex topics, Mm -hmm. you have to modularize all of the areas so you can 
in your mind, reorganize and reassort them according to how the debate goes and flows. And that, that was an incredibly uh, insightful uh, experience, and it taught me a lot about teaching, taught me a lot about public speaking. So I, I was pretty enthusiastic about doing that So when that you taught this thing. class, you didn't, you didn't use notes? I didn't use notes. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> Caltech. Uh, it sounds like that you had um, some options as far as where you were going to go to undergraduate. Well, let me just say, I think uh, one thing about growing up in Montana, perhaps the most important thing in many ways educationally, was I had three of the best teachers I've ever had in my life. My chemistry teacher with whom I taught biology, a math teacher, and a uh, social studies uh, teacher. And the chemistry teacher really... Um, I mean, I think he was in a, a serendipitous event in my life because as a uh, <clears throat> World War II meteorologist, he'd gone to Caltech and was so impressed with Caltech. He was convinced when he went into teaching he'd send any good students he ever could to oh. Caltech. So he, you know, very much initially against my will because I wanted to go to a liberal arts school, persuaded me to go to Caltech. And that was, for me, it was ideal. I got this terrific background in math, chemistry, and physics, and um, I got to be with world-leading biologists at Caltech, and it was, you know, it was the beginning of getting really accelerating into biology, and yeah. then when I went to medical school, getting more into medicine and all. But but I think his being in Shelby and his persuading me to go to Caltech really was a seminal event. A seminal choice in my life about the direction I, my career took. And you, you said almost against your will. Um, well, I, I how wasn't. How did he convince you? I guess that's the question. Um, through gentle persuasion for about a year or so, and he, his argument was basically: Look, you want to go into science. There's no better place you can go to get a good background in science. And. My my one reservation was to get in, you had to take the advanced math tests, mm-hmm. which were a lot of calculus, and we had had no calculus at Shelby, so I said, I'm going to really be at a disadvantage, and he said, try. If you don't get in, you'll go to one of the other places you thought you'd go to anyway. That's so, an argument, yeah. yeah. So I ended up trying. I'm sure I got one of the lowest math scores on those tests, because everybody at Caltech had had calculus and then some. But because you were thinking more about going to liberal arts school, even though you were interested in the sciences and specifically biology, was that because you you wanted you felt like at a liberal arts school you would have a more rounded education? That's correct. Yeah, okay, that's correct. That fits in with sort of your, mm-hmm. your background. You go to Caltech, and you step in with all these students who, as you said, probably had at least stronger math skills than you. Um, how did you adjust? What What did you learn there? Well, I mean, it was uh, the first year was overwhelming and terrifying because here all these prep school kids came in that had could skip one or two years of math and had a lot of physics and yeah. had a lot of chemistry. So, so I had to work really hard, and uh, and I did. And after a year, I got caught up, and and uh, and then everything was fine. You finish undergraduate. What are you thinking then? Well, I was thinking that at Caltech, I'd had really this good fundamental biology background, molecular biology, virology. It was all about single-celled organisms for the most part. And I really 
decided since the beginning that human medicine was what I was interested in. So, so I decided I would go to medical school and uh, take the first two years of uh, basic science and then transfer from medical school and uh, go someplace and get a PhD. But uh, in looking at medical schools, and I looked seriously at two, Harvard and Hopkins, Hopkins had this accelerated program where if you went um, through the summers, you could finish in about three years. And they only let students do that who had non-typical career aspirations. So I really wanted to go back and get a PhD, and that was pretty non-typical at that time. So, so I went through Hopkins and uh, really learned about everything that I'm doing today. I got interested in immunology. I got interested in cancer. I got interested in the brain and neurodegeneration and things like that. Those are all areas that I'm working on today. But it was, it was a terrific uh, background. And then I went back to uh, Caltech for graduate school. So, but you never had the, the idea that you were going to become a practicing physician. Never. Yeah, you always wanted to be a researcher. Mm-hmm. And you said that that was not common back then, at least. That's correct. And wh- why is that? Well, I think most people, particularly then, who went to medical school, went to become, at the very least, uh, a clinician that did clinical research. But no one in my class had this intent of going... Uh, then going back and getting a PhD and going into research. I did have a few classmates that ended up being really great scientists and ended up, but they were always at their heart clinicians that were. Steve Rosenberg, a friend of mine uh, in my class, is head of uh, the cancer uh, surgery branch at the National Institutes of Health. And, and, and so I had friends like that, that. So he's done a lot in research, but always through the core of treating patients and so forth. You finished on Hopkins, and you go back to this. It's beginning to look like a love affair with Caltech at this point. It's your second sure. trip to Caltech, mm-hmm. and this is for your PhD program. Right. I decided that what I was really excited about at Hopkins was immunology. So I was looking for a good place to land and be able to do a PhD in immunology. And, and I'd actually done a lot of reading about, uh, you know, new frontiers and, and uh, studying antibodies through Benz-Jones proteins, homogeneous antibodies that came about from tumors. And it turned out that Bill Dreyer, the same year I went there, went to Caltech. And he was uh, really uh, one of the pioneers when he was at NIH and beginning to look at Benz-Jones proteins and he had the protein chemistry to do the kind of things that I wanted to do. So uh, I went. Uh, I decided to go back to Caltech to work with, with him, and got started in molecular immunology. And it was, it was really a fortuitous choice because, um, <clears throat> what I did was um, create mouse models in which you could induce plasma cell tumors and purify the proteins and characterize those. And so by my, uh, by my second year in graduate school, I had really exciting results. And I was starting to get invitations to go to San Diego and Berkeley to give seminars. So it, it, my whole career took off then and kind of just kept going upward. Uh, and it was one of those very fortuitous um, events where you get in right at the beginning of the explosion of a new field. 
And so I ended up becoming one of the major figures in, in that whole field, and that carried me through my um, PhD work and then back to NIH for three years, and then uh, I brought that back to Caltech when I came there as an assistant professor. So it was, it was really love at first sight with immunology and the immune system and the molecular deciphering of, uh, of antibody diversity. But while you were at Caltech for your PhD, you also, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but took classes in philosophy, um, literature as well. I did. And, I and did indeed. Why were you doing that? I, I just felt that I really wanted to be broader than just a scientist. And Caltech's attitude was a great one. It was, look, you, um, I mean, as I translated it, you go to graduate school for two reasons. One is to learn to read the literature critically, and two is to learn how to do science, to mm -hmm. figure out. Because, you know, science is a bit of a random walk, yet some people make really great decisions every time, and, and that's what's called learning to do science, making those good decisions that take you into interesting places. And so the attitude was, courses are kind of a frill, and I decided as a frill, I'd like to get some diversity in my life. So I took, I think, four different courses in the time I was in graduate school, a couple on philosophy and a couple on um, English. And what did, they, what did they teach you? What did you pick up from those classes that maybe you brought forward into you know, the rest of your career? Well, I just think they made me a broader individual, and I think they made me a much more interesting individual, just knowing how to think in different ways about a lot of things. Philosophy is terrific for teaching you how to think critically and how to think about how to think about areas that are really complicated in ways that make sense. So I it, and it was um, I also found that science is really intense and it's really terrific to have breaks and just get away and and refresh your mind on other things. And the other area that, that uh, I really started pushing then was I uh, learned to do technical climbing during that period of time. And then I continued that on up through a lot of my career. And, and what is great about technical rock climbing is that it requires two skills that, are, uh, that I loved. So one skill is you really had to be in terrific shape uh -huh. just to be able to do what was demanded of you. And the second skill was you really had to be a good problem solver. Because when you're climbing new faces, there aren't signs out there about where you have to go, and you have to have judgment and experience and make calls. And so it was, so what was great about rock climbing is when you went out and did it, you forgot about everything. It was. It took you out yeah. into a different kind of physical world and gave you what you needed. So I found, I found those things as a terrific counterbalance to, you know, the intensity of a research career. The, the rock climbing. How did you come upon that? Did did you know somebody who took you out for your first time, or did you? Well, when I grew up in Montana, I'd done an enormous amount of mountaineering, and I'm really good in the mountains and know my way around and everything. And I did. Uh, low-grade climbing, but I had a couple of friends that started taking me out to um, climbing rocks, and then they taught me 
the skills. And the, the pinnacle of my climbing career was uh, climbing um, the, the nose of El Cap in about a 23-hour continuous period of time with a climber who was utterly superb. I mean, he was so far out of my class. But we did all these really, really difficult pitches. And he wanted to do it without any aid, any protection, which is not, not how it was ever done before. And so he led the really, really difficult pitches. And we did the whole thing in 23 hours, without I think. Aid? Without aid. Well, yeah. What does that mean? That means no, uh, you're not hooked to gear? No, you're hooked to gear, but with aid, what you do is you'll put a little nubbin in a crack so that if you fall, you only fall the rope distance yeah. past where that anchor point is. If you're climbing free, you, you only use your own muscle skill and experience. You do put in protection so that if you fall... You can be caught. So you agreed to do that? In that I, I, I agreed to do that. Oh, I was thrilled that he would ask me. And, uh, and it, was, it was right at the uh, right at the maximum of what I could do. I mean, that, that challenged me. As nothing I've ever done physically huh. has challenged me. Yeah. You rock climbed from that point on? For I, I rock climbed from that point on until, uh, I would say, about... The last really fun rock climb I did with, was with my son maybe five or six years ago. And my wife said, look, it's time that you, <laughs> to you're, give it up. you're too old for this kind yeah. of thing. So, uh, that's hard. Yeah. That's hard. You finished a PhD in Caltech, and it's off to uh, the NIH, I think, for your right. first bit as a researcher. Yes, I had an MD, so the alternative was to go to Vietnam for three years and go out on the battlefield and since I didn't have a license I would have done first aid on the right. battlefield so so I went to NIH uh, to the National Cancer Institute and I got a position there as a senior investigator in the immunology branch and I did my molecular immunology for the three years there and, and taught a bunch of courses there and met all of the people who were leaders in American medicine for the next 40 years, it was kind of the most fortuitous uh, conjunction of really world-class pioneers in medicine that you could imagine. And, uh, and so I had a good science experience. I met a lot of interesting people. Uh, I got some really good experience in teaching and thinking about teaching. And uh, then I was ready to go back and become an academic. Caltech. Your favorite, yeah. Yeah. So there, your professor. So there, I was an assistant professor. That's correct. Yeah. And for how long? So I remained on the faculty from 1970 until 1992 when I moved up to Seattle. Mm -hmm. So it was a 22-year period stint. There's there are rumors. The rumor was that you might go back to Montana and, and run for the Senate. Was well, you know, in my younger career, I really thought seriously about that as a possibility because I, I really liked the idea of, A, going back to Montana and, yeah. B, in getting involved in politics. But I, as I started to have some experience with government and how it's run and everything, and I got to know representatives and senators, I came to realize that I could probably be much more valuable to society as a scientist than as a uh, politician. Yeah. So I I uh, I would say within 10 years or so I pretty much decided I wasn't going to do politics, but it was 
I thought it was a, a, a tremendously attractive career when I was young. Okay, so in these, what, 22 years mm-hmm. at uh, Caltech as a professor now, um, what did you learn? What sort of breakthroughs did you make in the lab? Um, how else did it sort of crystallize your thoughts on um, ways to tackle health issues? I remember in the late 80s putting into NIH and NSF some of the initial grants on kind of systems thinking and stuff like that. And they got terrible scores, never got funded. No one could quite figure out what I was talking about. It wasn't clear. I totally understood what I was talking about. But, you know, as time passed, uh, it, it became clear that we really needed some fundamental paradigm changes that in, to enable dealing with complexity. So I got involved in, in, over time, five of these. So one was the development of bringing engineering to biology. So we developed five instruments that let us read and write DNA and proteins. And, and those really transformed the whole field of biology. And what was really important about them is they introduced the idea of high-throughput biological measurements and hence of big data. So that was a one big important area. And I'll say parenthetically, I'd been at Caltech for just uh, three years when my chairman, who was, I think, very sympathetic to me, came in and said, I'm advising you in the strongest possible terms to give up this engineering. And I said, no, I wasn't going to do it. It was really going well. And then 25 years later, I said, why did you ever say that to me? And it turned out that the senior biologists at Caltech thought it was unseemly to have this engineer in biology. And he even said they wanted me to move you into engineering. Uh-huh. At least I didn't ask that. But that was... Well, so, sorry. So he was coming down to sort of quietly uh, give you a warning yeah. that these other yeah. people... I see. But, but the warning was a matter of taste because I got tenure two months later, and that's really early for Caltech. So it wasn't saying I wasn't doing science that qualified me to be tenure. It was saying I was doing science that didn't suit their taste. Yeah, they didn't know sort of what box to put you in. They didn't know what box to put me in. And then the second issue, uh, paradigm change, came from... So one of the instruments we developed was the automated DNA sequencer, And that made the Genome Project possible, so I got invited to the first meeting. And that meeting crystallized for me that the genome was absolutely essential to this thing I was starting to call systems biology because you needed the parts list before you could really get down and do experiments right. And the genome was going to provide the gene part list and, by inference, the protein parts list. And it did. And I will say, the senior biologists at Caltech were pretty uniformly against the Genome Project, too. So that was a second mark against me. When I, so I pushed, it from, I pushed it from 85 to 90 when it finally happened. And I would say, in the beginning, 90% of the biologists were against it. And for just traditional big science is bad science, the genome is all junk. Why would you want to sequence it? The genome, it's trivial work. You'll never get anyone good to work on. I mean, all those arguments. And David Baltimore and I wrote back-to-back articles. He had a very elegant article about why this was a terrible idea. And uh, it was just every one of his points was wrong in retrospect. Huh. So, so people hear, people translate what you say into what they want to hear. 
And, and people are really, scientists are really conservative, basically, most of them. So that the next thing that happened was I realized that in making the sequencer, DNA sequencer, which required a, I recruited a really good chemist, uh, an engineer, and a computer scientist together with myself. And once we got that team together, we figured out in six weeks how to do the whole thing. And it took us three years to actually do it. But it made me realize that I wanted to create a biology department that was cross-disciplinary in nature that could generate the tools we so desperately needed for the future. So again, I, I went to a president at Caltech and made this proposition to Tom Everhart. And he, uh, he said, gee, this sounds like an interesting idea. And, and the, uh, the chemists and the engineers thought it was a great idea. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The biologists vetoed it. Bill Gates then made it possible uh, to move to the University of Washington. And in the medical school, I created the first ever uh, cross-disciplinary uh, department called Molecular Biotechnology. And I'll tell you, for eight years, it was spectacular. We had two faculty who developed the first two really key methods for proteomics, Rudy Eversall and John Yates. Mm-hmm. And they're one of the three or four or five leaders in it today. Uh, we had Gare Van den Ning develop an entirely new multi-parameter cell sorter. Uh, I developed there the inkjet technology for large-scale DNA synthesis that uh, Agilent has commercialized. And we actually had uh, two of the 16 human genome centers. Maynard Olson led one and I led the other. So it was it was enormously successful, but you know, again, serendipity uh, uh, raised its head because the dean that recruited me, who was a terrific scientist, to the University of Washington had said, look, come and set up the cross-disciplinary department, and then I'll give you an additional floor, and you can set up systems biology on top of that. So this dean, after the first four years, which is 
what I figured it would take me to, to set up the cross to splinter department, died in an avalanche in the Himalayas. And the next dean who came on board had totally different priorities. And, you know, I struggled for three years, but I decided I would be old and decayed before I ever got an institute for systems biology through. So I ended up resigning and then starting the Institute for Systems Biology in 2000. And I would say that's the second serendipitous event in my life that really transformed my life. Had the old dean stayed, I would have stayed at the medical school, and I would have done 15 or 20 percent of what we've done as an independent. I mean, it's just been spectacular. So... Uh, so I want to sure one thing was was the dean who died was he was he mountain climbing when the avalanche happened how did he happen to no be in the he was a trekker so oh. he was in the Himalayas and uh, they had just gone over a seventeen thousand foot pass got to the other side he was totally exhausted and then they got word that there was a terrible storm coming so two of the three Sherpas stayed with he and his wife. And the third one went back to get some help because he, he just couldn't move. And they all got caught in an the storm avalanche came after the storm. Oh, yeah. it's terrible. Okay. Um, so I do want to get to ISP, but I want to talk about the Human Genome Project. So you okay. mentioned that you were chosen to be on this in this sort of committee to decide whether this was something that was worth doing. Right, um, right. What were those conversations like? So this was a committee that was set up by the National Academy of Science, and they more or less had chosen half opponents and half proponents for the Genome Project. So for a period of uh, almost two years, we had really vigorous discussions back and forth. And we discussed and debated all issues. And they really fell into two categories. One, they were the philosophic, like big, system, big science, is it bad? Uh, you know, could we really do it? All of those kinds of things. And the second category were what is a realistic way to approach a project that seemed vastly overwhelming yeah. at the beginning? And the upshot was at the end of these considerations, the committee unanimously endorsed the Genome Project with enormous enthusiasm. And that was the thrust that finally pushed it over the top and got it started in uh, 1990 and, and so forth. And it was, it was just a wonderful experience in rationality operating really effectively and kind of clearing out all the, the, uh, the biases and the prejudices of big science and small science and really trying to look at it and what it would bring and what it offered. That was Let me just say one other thing that was really interesting is we sold the Genome Project to the politicians, Congress, way before we did to the scientists, and they were attracted because of innovation, world leadership, uh, uh, a, a terrific role in a new kind of science, for all the right kind of reasons. Mm -hmm. So they were, they were all ready to move ahead, so it was bringing it was our colleagues uh, with us that was the real challenge. That's interesting. I, I sort of would have thought it was the other way around. Okay, so uh, Applied Biosystems, I do want to talk about uh, you, you moving from this academic world into founding a company and what that was like for you. Uh, can you take me through that, that path? I can. So in about, uh, about 79, I went to uh, President Murph Goldberger at Caltech and said, look, 
um, I'm developing these instruments and I'd like to get them out to society. And, and he gave me a long lecture about the role of academia is scholarship and education. It isn't commercialization. So I said, well, I didn't look at it that way. I said, transferring knowledge to society ought to be a major responsibility of all academics. And in the end, what he said basically was, Caltech is not interested in commercialization. If you want to do it, you're on your own. So I said, okay. So over the next year plus, I went to 19 different instrument companies and I pitched this vision of these uh, four instruments that we had at that time. And uh, out of the 19, it was interesting. DuPont bit and considered it for a while, but in the end they decided that they wanted to redo their big clinical analyzers, so they said no. And, and the other one is I went to Beckman Spinko three different times because Arnold Beckman was on our board. Uh-huh. And, in, and the final time they said, look, we really understand what you're pitching. We aren't interested. Don't come back. <laughs> you don't so need I to said, pitch okay. anymore. Right? Yeah, I said, uh, I said, okay. And then I was, you know, I really get depressed, but I was almost depressed then. And then Bill Bowes from San Francisco called me up and said, I hear you've been shopping this unsuccessfully. So look, I have a couple of million. Let's get a company started. So I said, terrific. And I went back to the president and he said, uh, totally predictably, venture capital money is dirty money. Caltech can't be seen taking any of that. And I said, look, there isn't any other alternative. I went to 19 companies and no one was interested. And so after haggling for about four months, five months, he finally agreed. We had a contract all set up. And then I gave a lecture to the Caltech trustees, of whom Arnold Beckman was one about the four instruments and how they were going to change biology. And Arnold came running up after this lecture and he said, this is absolutely incredible. This is just exactly what Spinko needs. He said, I'm so excited about this. And I said, well, I'd been to Spinko and I didn't think it was uh, what, uh, I don't think they're interested. And he said, that's impossible. So he flew up the next day and talked to these guys. And they, they basically said, well, I think we think Lee misled us because he wanted to start a company and make a lot of money, which is just utterly a bold lie, as you'll see in just a moment. So, and uh, so Murph Goldberger came in and was terribly upset and said, what are we going to do? And I said, look, um, it's really complicated, but I think what we have to do is go through with the venture capital company and all. And it, it took months again, and Arnold uh, calmed down. But you're saying um, that after you met with Beckman again, he said he actually wanted to buy it and bring it in-house? Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. and you were deciding which way to go. I yeah, see. and I was try- deciding which way to go. And, and the reason I didn't want to go to Beckman is I knew these people, and I knew they'd sabotage it every single way they could. Huh. And they were the leaders. I mean, it would have been a disaster. So... Finally, uh, you know, I got uh, I got Murph Goldberger to agree that this was a better way to do it. So we we did set up applied biosystems. And frankly, I learned two important things. One, if you have big good ideas, you've got to go to the very top. You can't go to middle level management that's interested in profit and loss. You got to go to the top. And two, I realized that. 
new ideas need new organizational structures. If I'd gone with any one of those companies, they wouldn't have got the talent we recruited. They wouldn't have put the resource focus on it that we could. It would never have been anything but partially successful. But starting that company gave birth to the whole vision and made it possible. So uh, so anyway. Um, so it's launched. It, it was launched and uh, Applied Biosystems was in the black within nine months because the first instrument they sold, uh, the automated uh, sequencer, Mike Huckapiller had done such a spectacular job at the engineering that they were able to take most of what we've done and just put an instrument out there that really worked well and everything. But he must have been pleased that you were in the black within a couple of months. The, the company's eventually bought. Well, just to go on, Murph came to me and said, you know, because of all this complication with uh, uh, Arnold, I'm going to ask that you take no equity whatsoever in this company. So, and I figure later the equity I had would have been worth about $300 million oh, after it goes through. So who, and of course, I was young and naive, and I said, of course not. I don't, I don't and I didn't. Yeah. I really didn't think about money and care about money. I just wanted to get the company started. So I got zero equity out of, uh, zero founders equity out of, uh, out of uh, a black box system. But Bill Bowes did, and... Bill Bowes and Pitch Johnson and Moshe Alafi all made a lot of money out of And did Caltech have a stake in it as well? No, not at that time. Ah. But, you know, I will say what Caltech did get out of it is the royalties from the automated sequencer, and they summed way over $100 million. And, in fact, that allowed them to build really a terrific IP force now. Mm-hmm. So Caltech is competitive with anyone out there, and it came out of the DNA sequencer. That I, I was told that by the people who set this up. I, I just think it's interesting that um, universities have caught on now. I mean, almost oh, universities. Well, I think most universities have gone the other way. They think their things are worth an awful lot more than they really are, yeah. and they're very unrealistic about their expectation. But I'll tell you, the other thing I really grade universities on is I grade them on the ratio of successful companies that really make it as against all companies they start. And there are an awful lot of universities where that number is vanishingly small. Institute for Systems Biology. Take me through setting that up. So, well, we started the Institute for Systems Biology. I resigned from the university on uh, December 14th, 1999, and, uh, and talked to the two people who later became co-founders with me about uh, coming to join me. And they both said, why don't you see if you can raise some resources before we make a commitment to leave academia and so forth. So I spent about six months uh, raising money, and it was a lot of it was philanthropy and things like that uh, to get started. And then we, we started in the middle of the year. And that's because you knew all along you were going to build it as a nonprofit? I knew all along I was going to build it as a nonprofit. I didn't want to build it as a for-profit because the time horizons for what I wanted to do were long, and it's just you weren't going to convince yeah. anybody to do it. So, and it, it totally was the right decision. So we really got started uh, in the first year with, uh, well, we probably had uh, 80 or 90 people and then grew rapidly uh, over the next uh, few years. Um, 
the focus initially was on kind of system science and figuring out how to do that for biology. Uh, it was also on driving technologies that would enable system science. So we, the, the Institute, probably our major contribution has been the area of proteomics with Rudy Abersall and Rob Mora. But we, we did uh, some really key things in genomics, for example, the, the company Nanostring came out of my lab. And that was kind of the first, uh, that was the first company that did single molecule detection on a commercial vein and everything. So, and we've more recently applied the nanostring instrument to doing extremely sensitive protein assays, and even more interestingly, to doing beautiful single cell analysis assays. So we continued to do technology development. I would say about a quarter of the institute are computational mathematical. So we've been a, an engine for generating algorithms for doing various aspects of systems biology. Cytoscape, the, one of the major uh, uh, graphical interface programs, came out of my lab in 2001, and it's, it's got a user set now that probably numbers 500 or so. And, it's an annual organization. But uh, what we started doing early in 2001 or so was beginning to apply these systems approaches to disease, and that led to the emergence of this thing we call uh, systems medicine. And, and that eventually led to um, P4 medicine, uh, which is predictive, preventive, personalized, and participatory. And let me just say that that uh, predict uh, um, um, systems medicine now is really at an interesting tipping point where it's making a big difference in how medicine is practiced. So we've kind of pioneered the idea that you can do the complete genome sequences of families and identify disease genes very effectively. And We've got great data in bipolar disease showing that that is the case. And then more recently, we've actually spent, uh, you know, maybe eight years trying to figure out how to take a systems approach to disease and create blood diagnostics. But what systems medicine is really about now is, is I think, two things. One, uh, as you'll see in a moment, we're... Um, Every patient is going to have a virtual cloud of billions of data points, and we'll have the computational wherewithal to integrate those data together and create models that let us optimize wellness and minimize disease for each individual uniquely. And, and the challenges that come from that um, uh, image of medicine are, one, how do you integrate together multi-scale data? that goes from genetic to molecular to cellular to organ data. How do you put all of that together and create models? One of the grand challenges of systems medicine. And the second one is, in all of these data, there is an enormous amount of noise, and the signals you're interested in are a very small part of that. So how do you deal with the signal-to-noise issues? And again, systems approaches are the key to doing that. And then the second area is one way to reduce complexity in that, that billion data set 
is to create for each individual what we call a network of networks. So biological networks operate at the chromosomal, the molecular, the cellular, the organ level, even social networks. They're all integrated together seamlessly and they let the individual process biological information. When one of there is disease, these networks become disease perturbed, and that alters the information that network can generate. And if you can capture that altered information, you have deep insights into biological mechanisms and into new approaches to diagnosis and therapy. We've, we have uh, examples of all of those kinds of things. So where we uh, came to uh, four or five years ago was uh, then the confluence of systems medicine with these new technologies and strategies and so forth with big data and its analytics and with a third area that's really critical, namely patient-activated social networks. And the three of those together create P4 medicine, basically. And I'll just say that it is my firm conviction that what is really going to drive P4 medicine into the healthcare system are the patient-activated social networks because they can motivate doctors to change in ways academics like myself can never do it. How, how so? Well, there is, for example, a whole series of social networks in many cities in the U.S. called the Quantified Self Movement that started from Wired Magazine in 2008. And they have these, these guys that use these digital devices to make all sorts of uh, personal measurements. They're learning how to use those to optimize wellness. And they're starting to go to their physicians and say, you don't know anything about wellness. I want to find a physician who's interested in wellness as opposed to being only interested in disease. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be an enormously powerful social force. So if I were to look at P4 medicine, I would say it's really about two things. One is quantifying wellness, and the second is demystifying disease. And of course, demystifying disease is where classic medicine focuses entirely. So in thinking uh, about a year ago about where I wanted to take ISB in the next uh, 10 to 20 years, I came to the conclusion a really attractive approach would be to think about a magnificent P4 pilot project which did a longitudinal Framingham-like analysis of 100,000 well patients. And the idea is once you start measuring these 100,000 patients, they very quickly will diverge into one of two categories. There will be those that remain well or get healthier there'll be those that diverge into sickness. And at a point, downtime, we'll be able to see that you are now on a, a sickness path for cancer, say. And since we're going to have measurements at multiple time points all the way down that divergence time, we can go back and extrapolate and look at the origins of when that divergence occurred. And then the idea is we can both understand mechanisms there and have early diagnostics that hopefully will let us divert patients very early on from that sick trajectory back to a wellness. So everything down that sick trajectory is what the healthcare system saves. 
and it's going to be an enormous amount of money as we, as we really work out how to do this. So how are we going to do this? Well, we're going to go from the first 100 pioneers, which we're starting this month, and uh, last month, actually, we started in March, and uh, we'll be analyzing them for a year, and we're going to uh, learn um, how many actionable possibilities everyone has. And we've hired great coaches to be able to take the metadata to the patients, say, here are your actionable possibilities, let us talk about how you can actually do them. And as you begin to improve the actionable possibilities, we'll have downstream measurements that can show you you're actually improving yourself. So we hope all of that's really going to promote uh, um, people um, both providing the samples they'll need to provide and, and uh, responding to the actionable possibilities and everything. So I wanted to ask you, as you've been a researcher for so long and, and you've also been on the commercial side of things, what do you think the responsibilities are for an academic researcher today? So I would say there are four, I, and I agree with Murph Goldberger. I think uh, education and scholarship are really key things, and by that, educating your mentees, uh, your colleagues, uh, and, and so forth is critical, and scholarship is what really what we're all about. Mm-hmm. I would say the third thing that's critically important is I think you have an absolute obligation to transfer useful knowledge to society whether in terms of technology, it might be creating companies like applied biosystems. If it's uh, P4 medicine, it might be creating pilot projects that will themselves become the focus for catalyzing the change in in medicine. Um, ISB actually has uh, eight full-time people that are working on K-12 science education. We've really revolutionized education here in Seattle and we're beginning to move out and take these uh, approaches to the state as a whole. So I think that's really been important. Just to give you an idea, ISB, in the um, 14 years of its existence, has participated in the creation of 18 companies. So we've, And part of it was because we started the Accelerator, which was a company to create early uh, startup opportunities uh-huh. for... Uh, interesting scientific possibilities. And the third thing is we, we've always had a commitment to changing healthcare, and the 100K project right. is a classic example of that. And I'd say the fourth thing that I feel really strongly about is I think every academic should be willing to play a local leadership role in their community and in their their scientific environment because I, I think that leadership is just desperately needed these days. And, and, uh, and so I really push the people I train to think in those terms too. And what do you mean by that? You mean to go out and speak, to present papers, to... All of those kind of things, yeah. I mean, look, each of us is adapted to do different things and you, you figure out what you're good at, but I give an enormous number of public lectures and talk about what's going on and, and those kind of things. Huh. So, yeah. um, one, one more thing and then we'll probably end, but as we talked earlier about your, your background and how you want to be well-rounded and you, you know, took philosophy classes, you were into sports, you played musical instruments, you read literature, etc. Um, do you think that that has anything to do with your ideas behind systems biology where all sorts of aspects come together 
in the body, whereas you know, you've trained all sorts of aspects of your mind to focus on problems. I mean, do you see a correlation between those two? You, you know, I really do. I think the fundamental correlation is a deep driving curiosity to know about things. And, and whether it's to know about philosophy or English lit, or it's to know about biological systems and how they work, and to really want to understand them at a level where you can think beyond how they're conventionally viewed mm-hmm. and things, I think is, is really important. So teaching, you know, I think two of the most important things we have to really teach our colleagues, our younger colleagues, are one, determined optimism, because there are a lot of naysayers that are going to say, you know, my entire career has been listening to naysayers who said, it'll never work, mm-hmm. it's ridiculous, why are you doing that? Uh, but the other thing is to really be able to think out of the box, because to solve the hard problems, they aren't linear extrapolations of how people have thought before. You have to sit down and kind of put the pieces in a different combination and think about them in new ways. So how was that? I'm telling you, that man is, that man is interesting. Uh, thanks to Lee Hood for uh, giving us his time. Thanks for the Institute for Systems Biology for hosting us. Uh, I'd like to thank you for listening. A couple of maintenance items, well, only one maintenance item, and that is that you can find this podcast on our homepage. You can find it on iTunes, and you can find it on Stitcher by searching Nature Biotechnology. So maybe that's actually three things. Those are three maintenance things. Anyway, thanks for listening. This has been Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.